Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 18th of September, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish. I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and also our very own Mark Anderson from the United States. Uh, well, Alex, uh, we felt that we should get back onto the subject of Ukraine, uh, momentous events taking place and that sad war uh, still um, still unfolding. What have you got? Now enter the um, fourth six-month period of this war, we could say. Um, people are realising that it's going to be a long slog. Uh, in fact, they, uh, there's been an interview by Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, very recently to German uh, media telling them just that, be prepared for the long slog. Uh, but this is causing uh, all of the Western media outlets to notice almost simultaneously, a bit like how they're all, all simultaneously noticing that President Biden isn't fit for office in a coordinated op-ed move. They're all now starting to notice that Ukraine is not winning. Uh, the European Conservative has one of the most compelling stories recently. This was set up by the late Sir Roger Scruton, among others. Now, this is not yet a Ukrainian government or presidential demand. It's staying at the level of Parliament and the National Security Council, but it affects Central European countries not far from where I'm speaking from. Austria, the Czech Republic, Germany. Germany alone has something like a fifth of a million draft-age Ukrainian men uh, in situ, uh, and it's constitutionally barred from extraditing them at Ukraine's demand uh, because dodging the draft is a legitimate reason for asylum in that country. Um, but the Austrian and uh, Czech press and parliaments have said, we will not be doing anything uh, to send the men back. Uh, the demand is itself rather telling. Here, with thanks to uh, Three Nations, uh, Rodney Atkinson's website, which will be in the show notes for the source, like everything else, we see a very shocking, uh, alleged, not confirmed standing order found on the corpse of a reconnaissance soldier uh, apparently killed near Zaporozhye or Zaporizhye in recent action. Before I go any further, you can see who it's, who it's signed by. So if this is a breach of the Geneva Convention, if it, is turned, if it does turn out to be genuine, um, the uh, commanding officers of the 3rd Mechanized Battalion, uh, which is Lieutenant Colonel Zurab Chedze, a Georgian surname, but serving in the Ukrainian military, uh, and the Chief of Staff Roman Vlasik of that 3rd Mechanized Battalion, um, they're responsible for this. Now, of course, most of us don't read Ukrainian, but if I just blow that up to show the key sentence, which Atkinson also translates on Free Nations, it says, uh, in the case of surrender of Russian parachutists, uh, do not accept their surrender, kill on the spot, and it is strictly forbidden for, to uh, record the uh, uh, killing. And uh, The rest of it is fairly standard standing orders. Um, uh, Atkinson's page there has a lot more detail on uh, the prosecution of alleged war crimes going on now that some of the captured ter ter territory has been captured by the Russian Federation in the south and east and uh, trials are going on. I cannot vouch for the validity of it. It looks like a genuinely crumpled standing order from a corpse's pocket, but I know that there is a lot of propaganda in this war. A new low, e even so, uh, if proved genuine. We're going to have a minute's clip or so now of another new low which is that uh, a visibly pregnant woman, in fact, for those listening in audio only, she's about to show off her baby bump, uh, visits a specialist uniform tailoring shop run by Ukrainian women for Ukrainian women, for the 5,000 women uh, in uniform in Ukraine. And we're going to see how this woman, now that she's got to several months pregnant, uh, has decided not to be on the front lines anymore, but to go to a rearward position and stay in the armed forces. Uh, we're going to see in this clip how delighted she is that her special maternity military uniform is available. Yes. <laughs> Бачиш, тобі кажу, мене вже, ну, все. Right, 
Brian, I think I have to cut back to you there just to get some response to that. Uh, for those listening in audio only, the lady is called Yevhenia Emerald. In the rest of that clip, she explains that she met her love of her life on the front lines, uh, married, both wearing flak jackets. She had a social media followership that was telling her, you go girl, and she was promising she was going to stay with the fight until the end of the war. Therefore, she was embarrassed about admitting her pregnancy. She finally came out with the news uh, and she's been given this new position. And then the girl she's speaking to, Xenia in the uniform shop tells the journalists later in the clip, well, it does happen that we get a dozen orders in and then we get told just make two or three. The rest of the girls have all died. They also make up boxes for the girls on the front lines, uh, snipers in winter conditions who get vaginal and urinary, urinary tract infections in the cold. And the Ukrainians are apparently proud of this. Uh, well, is it the Ukrainians that are proud of it or is it actually Western woke agenda that's come into Ukraine? I, I think this is terribly sad. It's pitiful to see. But of course, part of this is on the back of the fact that the Ukrainian losses are so horrific and they are desperate to get any fit adult into the armed forces. And it appears that they're now prepared to stoop as low as uh, pregnant women. So I, I think this is really horrific, but we've got to remember the uh, the losses. We still don't have the full figures, but between 300,000, 400,000 killed. And many people are talking about the offensive running at 500 to 1,000 um, killed and wounded per day. So this is perilous times for the Ukrainians. And at the other end of the age scale, Brian, grannies are getting five years in jail in Ukraine, as reported by Ukraina Pravda here, for the crime of logging on to Odnoklassiki, the Russian version of Facebook, banned in the Ukrainian uh, territory, uh, for three likes which came up on the grandmother's feed. Uh, for this, she has been sentenced to uh, five years for glorifying the aggressor, uh, for liking stories that came up. This one uh, actually is uh, taking the threat a step further. First of all, the covering report uh, by Breitbart, uh, which captures the key point of interest in the Zelensky interview, uh, entitled, Is That a Threat? Zelensky warns that Ukrainians in Europe could act unpredictably if Western aid is cut. This isn't Breitbart bigging it up. If we uh, go through to the Economist, House Journal of the Powers That Be, of course, they picked up uh, another matter from the same interview in the headline about Trump's support for Putin. But here's the key passage. Mr. Zelensky says that it would create risks for the West in its own backyard to curtail aid to Ukraine. Well, there's a reason he says that. He senses it's on the horizon. There's no way of predicting how the millions of Ukrainian refugees in European countries would react to being abandoned. Uh, his people have generally behaved well and are, quote, very grateful to those who sheltered them, says Zelensky. I would argue differently, uh, seeing the Dutch and German streets. Uh, they will not forget that generosity. But it would not be a good story for Europe, says Zelensky, if it were to drive these people into a corner. Blackmail, much, uh, but it gets worse. Uh, this may be a fake from the latest information we've been told, particularly because there's a German flag in the bottom corner there, which you don't often see, particularly in Berlin. But it purports to be a Ber Berlin apartment gable end um, with a cartoon of Zelensky the cannibal ripping off uh, a Ukrainian arm and devouring it. It is said that uh, German police are on the, look, on the lookout for the artist, but to say it may be fake. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg has get, got in on the action as well. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, Nord Stream, just to flag up uh, for those who want to read in the show notes, Ola Tunander, a very informed Swede, has brought out a two-part follow-up to his reporting of what happened a year ago with the blowing up of Nord Stream in the Baltic Sea. And he entitles it The Poseidon Attack on Nord Stream. Here, which I won't read, is a great section, well, a large section, I should say, on the use of British Poseidon uh, aircraft from Lossiemouth in the date range 22nd to 26th of September last year, just before the big boom. Uh, and so not just Norwegians, as the original Seymour Hirsch story claimed, as we uh, featured at the time. Uh, but look, also, he's got plotting going on back to the beginning of September 2022. And you can see that the big two East Anglian uh, US Air Force bases, nominally owned by the Royal Air Force in the east of England, Lakenheath and Mildenhall, are in the frame because a Boeing P-8A Poseidon, uh, owned by the US, not a British or Norwegian one, uh, this is a key point now. It may be that there was more direct U.S. Air Force involvement than we thought, uh, took off from East Anglia and circled over the uh, later zones of action. And now we come to Jens Stoltenberg uh, in very awful English, which if you freeze the frame, you can uh, savour to your heart's delight. Uh, here are his opening remarks to two 
committees of the European Parliament recently, AFIT and SEDE, the Foreign Affairs and the Defence Committees. And uh, at the end of his opening remarks, uh, we are told in terms by Stoltenberg that Putin said in autumn 2021 that if no more en NATO enlargement could be promised, uh, he would not invade Ukraine. And Stoltenberg says, of course, we didn't sign that. The opposite happened. And you can see as the paragraphs go on there, he's admitting that NATO had a choice to avoid this wall entirely. Uh, something that's more down in the weeds is that the grey zone with the ever perceptive Kit Klarenberg has picked up on a missing detail recently, um, which is that the biggest arms supplier uh, in Ukraine may have orchestrated the Maidan coup. Uh, now, this goes back to, if I put this frame on screen, people may recognise this from our coverage in 2017, some Georgian snipers who went to a Balkan country to tell Italian journalists in this show, Gli Occhi della Guerra, The uh, Eyes of War, uh, that uh, a Georgian contingent started the shooting in that coup of nine years ago. The man's name, Mamuka Mamulashvili, was given. Uh, also, the identity uh, of uh, an American with the 101st Airborne, who was apparently their tactical commander. Uh, but this has all come to the fore now because even the New York Times has picked up on the fact that that big arms dealer in question, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, although he's an unsavory character, even in the, the eyes of Zelensky, uh, has been required to uh, source some of the weapons that Ukraine wants now. So it could be a, an Uroboros, you know, the Ukrainians eating their own tail as they require um, the, uh, the, the arms to keep flowing in. Briefly on Nicolas Sarkozy, former French president, he has a book to sell, so take this with a pinch of salt, salt if you wish. But he's spoken to Le Figaro, one of the big Parisian dailies, and the headline of his interview is We Need the Russians and They Need Us. Uh, in this section, which I won't translate for want of time, uh, he is talking uh, about how um, uh, Putin is less irrational than he, uh, he is told by others. He doesn't believe there's been a big change since 15 years ago when Sarkozy more or less single-handedly or France single-handedly stopped the South Ossetia war. I can vouch, having, having been an expert at the time, that's exactly what the French did. The British did nothing. The Americans did nothing. All the heavy lifting was done by the French to put an end to that Russia-Georgia war. And he says that there's no way Ukraine can join NATO. It's, it's destined by history and geography to be a buffer state. This has caused quite a hoo-ha. Uh, even Anatole Levin, uh, a big hitter in the mainstream scene, a Chatham, Chatham House speaker in the past, uh, has pointed out that he's being vilified, is Sarkozy, for speaking uncomfortable truths. Um, just on screen at the moment, I won't read it out, but Levin is putting in quite a lot of print here just why this uh, war should not escalate any further. I haven't seen a, a journalist of this rank say that to the thinking uh, classes before in the mainstream. Sarkozy's remarks are, the Ukrainians will want to reconquer their territory. He admits it's an unjust uh, war from the Ukrainian perspective that's been taken from them. Uh, but we can't have any return of Crimea because that was Russian until the 1950s. And he also said Russia has to renounce its military action. But Ukraine, for its part, must pledge to remain neutral. Foreign affairs, this will interest Mark, the House Journal of the CFR. Uh, is going in on this as well. So that's just the last coverage of the New York Times saying the same. And of course, being the New York Times, it has to say that uh, Sarkozy is voicing obstinate Russian sympathies. And there is, uh, for good measure, uh, the length of the table at which the current French president, Macron, on the right, has to speak to Putin as of last year. So here's um, more coverage of the um, uh, interview with Sarkozy with another source. This is uh, uh, giving an interview with a French broadcaster, France, uh, France 5 TV, and he says at the bottom there in small print, apologies, uh, we at the Boulevard Saint-Germain, that's the equivalent of Whitehall in Paris, we're very brave in terms of sending young Ukrainians to die. So he's really got the gloves off in a way that you wouldn't have expected. And now as trailed foreign affairs at the end of this segment, um, the, the CFR's House Journal is getting into um, some detail here that even America may lose heart. Uh, having said Europe schmurup, it doesn't really count because this, of course this is an American foreign policy perspective. It says that if the US uh, dropped its support. This would be utterly disastrous. A coordinated browbeating seems to be going on here between Zelensky uh, and some of these uh, system writers for uh, for foreign policy. And it's suggesting in the end that you might get a direct Russia-America showdown if you, America withdraws from Europe. This is the way that the foreign affairs couches it. Uh, and finally, then on uh, where this takes us, Newsweek is reporting, of course, a US title uh, that the editor of uh, a Russian uh, defense journal uh, has said that there may be nuclear strikes. He suggests, without using the name, that the Sarmat ICBM may be what's uh, required. But if you look uh, at even what they've embedded in Newsweek, uh, that you see the name Ben Hodges there, because this was started by a senior NATO logistics general, Ben Hodges, saying 
uh, we may use nukes on Russia. So it always isn't a one-way street. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, it's not a good story, is it, altogether? Um, the fighting goes on, the threats uh, increase, uh, but nobody wants to call for peace and stop it. Let's have a look at uh, one of the retired generals, uh, General Richard Sharif, who's uh, been speaking out. This is with Develt. And uh, let's hear what he has to say and how he says it when he's questioned about the success or otherwise of the war in Ukraine. Ukraine has chalked up some successes on the battlefield in recent weeks. They've actually taken back control of drilling platforms now in the Black Sea. But I wondered if you could give us an idea of some of the, of the scale of the challenges Kiev now faces in order to make further advances. I think it would be really difficult to overestimate the challenge. I mean, the Ukrainians are uh, ranged against well-established Russian defences. Uh, the Russians have had time to dig in. They know about digging in. They've dug in probably by the book. And the Ukrainians have got to break into the, that very, very well-established defensive zone, break through it. They've got to take down minefields. They've got to, uh, they've got to cope with uh, significant art artillery incoming fire. Uh, they've got to break through and then they've got to break out. And they've got to do all of this without proper air cover, uh, without air superiority, which no NATO army would consider doing. And in fact, what they're doing is what no NATO army, full stop, has done, an opposed uh, obstacle crossing in really difficult circumstances. No other NATO army, with the exception of the US, could, could even take this on, could it, in, its, in their current forms? Oh, I think... I think I think any NATO army that that that, that uh, aspires to high intensity combat operations would be would be prepared to take this on, but not without an extraordinary amount of time, preparation, training, uh, building up equipment, building up ammunition, and doing it. I mean, in a sense, it's it's it, this is what um, uh, I mean. The 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 coalition did in ninety one was to break through the Iraqi defensive position, but it was unopposed. So it was pretty easy going. Nobody's done this since the Second World War in Europe. Well, there we are. Lots of stutters and ums coming out of that one. Nobody's done it since the Second World War and nobody's doing it now. Uh, Ukrainians dying in vast numbers trying to penetrate those Russian defences uh, without any air cover and without heavy weapons because they are running out. Uh, but this is coming to the surface now, as is Western training. So comments here from Ukrainian commanders, um, one of them saying he'd be dead if he fought exactly how the US and its allies taught him. If we do this very quickly, um, the point these men are making is that the Western forces supposedly training them don't have the experience of the type of warfare they're engaging in. And therefore, some of the training at least is irrelevant to what they're experiencing on the battlefield. Uh, another report here from so-called Dutchman talking to Open Democracy. Um, he says he didn't want to say anything about our partners, but they don't quite understand our situation and how we are fighting. And the commentary goes on to say that we need to understand who we're fighting. And that's because obviously the Russians are particularly tough, including the paratroopers, which is why if the uh, leaflet about shooting them is true, it would make sense. So he says uh, the problem is that the West can't train us because that will be putting boots on the ground and that was would be breaking NATO's rules. Um, but the, the key truth we're facing is that Western special forces have been on the ground since the earliest days for intelligence, reconnaissance and a training role. Uh, but we've got something else going on that the Western forces themselves are hamstrung by legal, regulatory safety and permissions. So they can't do the realistic training the Ukrainians want unless we make some fairly serious policy changes. So that's Nick Reynolds from Rusi admitting uh, that the Western forces can't fight. And uh, until that uh, problem can be removed, obviously, we can't we can't actually train the Ukrainians in the first place. So the mess continues. Um, well, can we make improvements by getting rid of Biden? Should the man be Trump? Uh, Mark, you've got some uh, comments here. Uh, yes, uh, quickly, I'm 
dedicating my part of today's show to uh, my mother who passed away this past Friday, September 15, Catherine Anderson. She was a pursuit pursuer of truth uh, herself, and she's a large reason that I'm a journalist. And so hats off to my mom. Um, she became a Trumper. Um, I, I've stayed as neutral as possible. She was a lifelong Democrat, then switched to Republican because of Trump, and she, she's never looking back. Hold on. Sorry about the phone. Anyway, um, here we have a CNN piece, and this is like usual. We have to untangle what the media is reporting so we can get the truth out and get understanding out. We have this headline, uh, a recent one, election officials reject calls to unilaterally block Trump from the ballot using the 14th Amendment, but they'll defer to the courts. And we'll move on from there. Should be. The, uh, the situation is such where, uh, pardon me, election officials in key states have recently rejected calls to unilaterally remove President Trump from the 2024 ballot and are saying courts should decide whether he's disqualified by the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. The secretaries of state who oversee elections in Michigan, Georgia, that's a key state, New Hampshire and Minnesota have recently said they don't have the power on their own to invoke the, invoke the 14th Amendment and block Trump from the presidential ballot. These officials, which include Democrats and Republicans, come from states comprising 45 electoral votes. Uh, we're jumping down to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He figures very prominently in things I'm going to be reporting today and in the future on UK Column. He's a Republican. He wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed saying that um, if they were to try and get rid of Trump on the ballot through the 14th Amendment, and if the secretaries of state like himself were to do that, that would, quote, reinforce the grievances of those who see the system as rigged and corrupt. Very, very interesting and ironic that he should say that, as we'll soon see. Moving on from there, um, I can kind of cherry pick this. Um, Trump denies wrongdoing regarding the January 26th uh, January 6, 2021, excuse me, attack and says these candidacy challenges have no legal basis. He has pleaded not guilty to separate federal and state indictments. We've heard all about those that charged him with crimes stemming from his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. You'll notice there that CNN assumes that he attempted to overturn the 2020 election. He's They're not uh, attributing that to anyone. They kind of hardwire it into what they're reporting. And uh, at the end of this clip, it says Ron Fine, the legal director of Free Speech for People, which is one of the organizations behind the anti-Trump candidacy challenges, said his group will continue to press this critical matter in the courts so election officials will carry out their duty to bar Trump from their state ballots. What's not made clear here is that the only way the courts can decide this is if Trump is taken to court and found guilty of insurrection and actually convicted of insurrection, only then could they even look at the constitutional um, element within the 14th Amendment that bars so-called insurrectionists from holding public office. So they, they just don't report what's actually involved in this, and they mislead people acting like this can be done separately from actually convicting Trump in a court of law of the actual um, uh, charge of insurrection. So it's a point of clarity here. Um, uh, many other secretaries of state are saying that Trump has every right to be on the ballot like anyone else until proven otherwise. And so uh, the anti-Trump uh, people are just going to desperate extremes and the media is twisting things as usual, as I pointed out, to try and delegitimize Trump in the eyes of the public. And so we'll just be keeping a close eye on this. But some other things I'm reporting today and an interview I'm doing later in the week are going to shed much more light on this in a much broader way. So back to you guys. Okay, thank you very much uh, for that, Mark. Well, it seems that we can't really trust any area of society, whether it's political or part of the uh, agencies. Uh, can we trust the police in UK? It seems not. We don't like to focus in on this particular story, which we mentioned several months ago concerning um, 
a civil servant who uh, was accused of being a far-right extremist by police as a result of a selfie with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Now, what was the background to this? The background was to do with the Kim Darroch, former uh, uh, British ambassador to Washington. There was a story uh, that uh, information had gone to a Ms. Kaczynski of CNN, um, uh, basically stories for sex, although this is denied by the parties. And uh, the civil service servant uh, basically got caught up in this because he was accused of being a whistleblower that this event had gone on in the background. Now, I've just taken part of the text from the paper. It is pretty extraordinary, but essentially this man gets his door kicked in uh, by 14 armed counter-terrorism officers uh, very early one morning. He was in the flat, his girlfriend was in the flat, and the next minute he was dragged from his bed, uh, even though he'd uh, recently undergone treatment for cancer and uh, he needed the toilet and he was eventually laughed at while he was in uh, the toilet because of problems uh, with his cancer treatment. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's utterly disgusting, but he was effect effectively taunted by the police. Uh, he was then soiled. He was taken off uh, by these armed officers and uh, put in a cell. Meanwhile, his uh, flat was trashed. And um, this has now come up against the Independent Office for Police Conduct. And there's some com comment commentary in the article, uh, which I think is very re revealing. The counter-terrorism police did not launch a formal investigation into the allegations that they'd been wrong in the actions. They instead chose to deal with the complaint otherwise than by an investigation. That's, uh, that's uh, telegraph language for a cover-up. This means the force took an early view that there was no indication from the complaints that a person serving with the police may have behaved in a manner which would justify the bringing of disciplinary proceedings or there was any infringement of the European Convention on Human Rights. And here it said that the IOPC expressed surprise that both a formal investigation was not launched and that the Professional Services Department of the Police effectively delegated the complaint handling to the counter-terrorism team at local level, despite the high profile and wide ranging nature of the complaints. This means the force took an early view that there was no indication from the complaints that a person serving with the police may have behaved in, uh, in a manner that would justify the bringing of disciplinary proceedings. This is a very important point. And if I take it through to that, the um, IOPC is making the statement, these decisions lead it to believe the Metropolitan Police Service may have underestimated or downplayed the range and complexity of complaints at an early stage. And they recommended that the Met reinvestigate the complaints through an independent body. Um, however, according to an email sent to uh, the civil servant himself, Mr. Hale Byrne, on the 8th of September and seen by the Telegraph, um, this had been ignored. So essentially, we're seeing Gestapo-type action, your door kicked in early in the morning, armed police then brutalising um, you, and when you complain, the police choose to ignore it. Um, serious stuff, Alex, I think. Brian and Ernest Moray was a Frenchman who recently had uh, a run-in with the same counter-terrorism uh, part of the Met, you'll recall, when he landed uh, or arrived at the Eurostar terminal in London at St Pancras. And when the independent reviewer uh, listened to the tapes regarding his complaint, um, he pointed out that these men were uh, out of control, that were threatening Moray with never seeing his family again and things that were well beyond their powers. Uh, but there is a link here with if, if you cross the deep state in either London or Washington with regard to certain issues, Trump, China, COVID, um, then you really can have hell to pay. And this goes all the way up to high level people at the CIA. So here, again, uh, two committees of the um, US Congress, the Select Subcommittee on COVID, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, as Mark would testify, a very high-ranking uh, committee of the House, uh, they have both written to the sitting director, William Burns, of the CIA, saying, uh, cough, cough up details or we will subpoena you because of what's on screen at the moment. In essence, seven CIA officers uh, were uh, told to work out what their view was 
on the origin of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, six of them made a low confidence assessment, not an absolutely certain, but a low confidence assessment that the, the COVID virus uh, originated from a laboratory in Wuhan. The sole dissident was the senior member, the seventh member of the team, uh, and thought that it was an animal to human transmission, zoonosis. And the whistleblower, who may not be the leader of the team, but someone else, says that the CIA then bribed the six underlings in that team to change their mind. And in the same tweet, which will be in the show notes that covers this letter, we will also be covering, uh, it, it also shows that um, the then uh, chief operating officer of the CIA is similarly subpoenaed by name. So they've got to have something to go on. Will it ever happen in Britain? Well, something not that far away has happened in Britain. Guido Fawkes, the blog, has a sub-brand Media Guido, which together with the Times, for those watching abroad, that's the establishment's newspaper, where often things are a bit more frank than in other papers because it's assumed that the plebs and even the middle class don't read the Times, only the system people do. Um, the Times has gone, uh, gone it alone and named this alleged Chinese spy. Uh, this was Chris Cash, who studied in China before working for Alicia Kearns, the very hawkish chairwoman of the Parliamentary um, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, and of course, in great secrecy, he was arrested. Uh, MPs were not told, a huge infringement of parliamentary privileges. And uh, as a result, he put out this lawyer's statement saying, uh, well, you can read it if you freeze the screen, but he's absolutely denying it all. Guido, which is usually a rah-rah up the Tories blog with little discernment, I would have to say, uh, is actually shocked enough this time to say, and think of what you just covered there uh, with the, the raid, Brian, that Chris Cash seems to be subject to a blanket ban on naming, even uh, or rather despite uh, the fact that the Times has named him. And it's not the first time, Brian, we've come to the conclusion that the Times gives people inside the system the line to take uh, and the rest told to shut up about it. Um, it's uh, rather con con concerning, particularly given that the Times has also, we now find, been onto the Conservative Party telling them successfully, you must drop these two candidates from your election candidature lists because we think they could be working for Peking. Evidence, of course, was not given to the public. And I just have to put it back to you with this, because you know so much uh, now about uh, the slippery pole of becoming a Conservative Party candidate, Brian. Uh, we are told confidently by The Times, by their uh, Stephen Swinford, their political editor, that Tory candidates are vetted by the party. No mention of the intelligence services there. They're subject to criminal record checks and an in-depth due diligence resource. Uh, report and are interviewed to assess their political judgment, experience and integrity. Uh, Brian, they must have missed something out there, but it wouldn't be the first time. Well, uh, no. And of course, the fact that the party is betting who is going to stand as a candidate means you're only going to get somebody who is deemed access, uh, acceptable to the, to the party. When I stood as an independent, of course, I didn't get any media coverage. There was simply a blanket ban. All, all apart from six seconds on BBC Radio Devon. So a lot to talk about uh, in that area, but clearly we can't trust the system inside or outside of politics. Um, now, for our audience, if you like what we do, please support the UK column, join us, subscribe. Um, you can join the uh, community for UK column and see what's happening. You can make a purchase from the UK column shop. That would help us. Uh, but of course, we say to you, please share all of the information as widely as possible. Um, that is a big boost for us doing what we do. Now, just a reminder that uh, Mike is going to be in Sweden uh, Saturday, the 30th of September, coming up on guard for the liberty of mankind. This is a symposium by the Children's Health Defence Europe and the Doctors Appeal. Uh, we've got some uh, faces here of people taking part, which includes Andrew Bridgen, MP, which will be interesting. And uh, of course, we'll keep you posted on what comes out of that uh, valuable conference. So there's the uh, web address if you want to go and have a look and get more information for, for yourself. Now, coming up on the 19th, we've got an interview with Ben Rubin. Uh, he's been interviewed by David Scott previously on matters to do with AI. And in this case, Debbie Evans is talking to him. And in particular, they'll be having a look at the future of Britain and Tony Blair's Institute for Global Change to have a look at what is planned uh, for mankind. Um, none of it looks too good, I don't think. So, Mark, we'll bring you uh, uh, back on screen. Far right county throws out voting machines. Yes, the Guardian, that Guardian of Truth, right? Not uh, has this headline. 
this is from this past spring. Or, yes, this past spring. Um, far right county, talking about California, throws out voting machines with nothing to replace them. Uh, right away, right out of the starting gate, that's absolutely false. They want to replace them with hand-counted paper ballots. And anyway, this is Shasta County, what the Guardian calls a conservative stronghold of 180,000 in the far north of blue California. A new vision for elections is taking shape. Wrong again. Hand-counted paper ballots are the longtime tradition. It's not a new vision. Anyway, paper ballots, no machines, and results tallied entirely by hand. What a novel approach. It's a vision predicated on the false belief that voting machines helped to steal the presidency from Donald Trump. The Guardian says that without having anything to base that on one way or the other. And that the system by which millions of Americans vote are unsafe. Okay, so if, if millions of Americans use it, that makes it safe. Interesting reasoning. But anyway, but in Shasta, they just might make that vision a reality, hand-counted paper ballots. Shasta became a hotbed for far-right politics, wrong, in the pandemic years, and election deniers have found allies on the county's governing board. How dare they, right? The Board of Supervisors. In March, that would have been of this year, the board's hard-right majority, that's alleged, cut ties with Dominion voting systems. The infamous Dominion Voting Systems, one of the big three in the U.S., by the way, the company at the center of baseless conspiracy theories about election fraud. Oh, really? Baseless. Anyway, we'll move on from there. Much more could be said, but we'll move on from there. Now, this is the Nevada Current, and this is from about a year ago. So a lot of this propaganda has been sown for quite some time. Listen to this headline, a conspiracy-fueled push to count ballots by hand gains traction. See, so you're not just counting paper ballots because it might be logical, it's conspiracy fueled. Isn't that, isn't that a terrible crime? Anyway, now we have Nye County, NYE, a rural enclave in Nevada, uh, having stepped forward before Shasta did in California, positioning itself as the epicenter of a Donald Trump-fueled conspiracy. So it's not just a conspiracy, it's a Donald Trump-fueled one about the security of electronic voting tabulators. And uh, I can just kind of summarize, the Nye County Commission voted in March to make the county one of the first to act on the false narratives, that's unproven either way, that machines that count the votes are rigged. County Clerk Mark Kampf, who has falsely claimed that Trump won the 2020 election, uh, as if he doesn't have the right to say that, has said that volunteer voters there will hand count the roughly 30,000 ballots expected in the November election. Across the country, Republicans aligned with Trump have directed ire at electronic voting machines with Republicans in at least six states Six states introducing legislation this year, that would have been 2022, to ban the use of ballot tabulators, Arizona, Colorado, Missouri, New Hampshire, Washington, and West Virginia. Over 90% of U.S. election jurisdictions currently use electronic voting tabulators, with only the smallest counties opting to count votes by hand. Uh, New Hampshire definitely has been a tradition on that one. And um, Dominion Voting Systems is, is, again, in the crosshairs. And voting experts say that using hand counting as the default method to count ballots, which requires that all voters cast paper ballots, is incredibly expensive, burdensome, and time-consuming. It is not expensive. In fact, those voting machines cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in the quantity that they're purchased at, and they often have to be retired, and new models have to be re have to be have to be purchased. Excuse me. Anyway, another headline from. The Guardian, that Guardian of Truth again, uh, this is a slightly different um, nuance, but re Wisconsin Republicans, now we're in Wisconsin, vote to fire the top election official as denialists, and this is from this month uh, of this year, um, as denialists tighten their grip. And so this, uh, the state Senate in Wisconsin moved to oust the nonpartisan elections nonpartisan elections administrator Megan Wolf, who became a lightning rod for conspiracy theories. Well, what the Wisconsin Republicans have objected to was Megan Wolf's um, uh, heavy introduction of uh, unsecure um, ballot drop boxes and a heavy um, institution of 
mail-in ballots way beyond the usual absentee ballot system and all the insecurities and vulnerabilities that that created. So those Republicans in Wisconsin have had a reason to do this, a, a very sound reason. Uh, the media distortion here is just absolutely incredible. And we're going to learn about more about that uh, today and in the near future here. Now, this slide here, this next one, this is a very important kind of uh, a pivot in what I'm reporting today. Uh, at the right in this photo is a very well-informed and dedicated gentleman, Garland Favrito. He's shown here, he's a VoterGA.org, that's Voters Organized for Trusted Election Results in Georgia. Um, I'm gonna be recording an interview with him tomorrow. And this presentation, as I'm noting here, will reveal highly compelling evidence of widespread election insecurity and inaccuracies in Georgia. And you can extrapolate out what he has researched to these other uh, bellwether states from the 2020 election, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, et cetera. And this is just a sampling of what Garland and I are going to discuss. And this really sheds a lot of light on what's going on. Uh, to the left is uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger and what he has said and to the right are some of the rebuttals of voter GA, and I'll just share a couple of these. Um, one of these is, let me see, Georgia's election system is secure. And the answer to that, numerous experts have provided court testimony and letters to government officials confirming it's not secure. Uh, the third, fourth one down, uh, Raffensperger, Secretary of State, the critics of Georgia's election security are from one of only two groups election-denying conspiracy theorists or litigants. The rebuttal, critics include cybersecurity experts and computer science professors throughout the country. The demeaning terms used by the author are intentionally designed to deceive the reader. And another, we conducted a risk-limiting audit and a full hand count of every ballot in Georgia to prove that our results were accurate. The rebuttal, Voter GA determined that Fulton County's full hand recount had a 60% batch error rate, falsified tally sheets, 300 plus duplicate scanned ballots, and 4,000 plus duplicate uh, reported ballots. And there's one more where I could cherry pick a little bit more. I'll do the last one. Um, let me see here. Uh, here we are. We have tests and audits to verify results. Tests cannot verify results because they are run before the results are produced. That's a common refrain from election officials. They'll test machines before elections and tell you they're trustworthy. And the last one, the MITRE report, points out that the vulnerabilities described by Halderman, a University of Michigan computer science professor who is a critic of the voting machines, as operationally infeasible. Um, and the rebuttal? By Voter GA, the, the MITRE report was funded by Dominion itself, produced without access to a voting system, and assumes perfect procedural defenses, which has been called ridiculous by those 29 computer science experts and researchers that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So uh, what I'm going to be interviewing Garland Favrito about is going to really uh, drop a bombshell on all these things pertaining to Trump that I mentioned earlier today. Uh, by, by implication and really show that uh, widespread vulnerabilities and inaccuracies and very probable election theft, in fact, has happened. And they're working like crazy um, in Georgia and elsewhere to keep their finger in the dike to prevent the flood of truth from, from uh, realizing itself. So back to you guys, it's uh, a very fascinating thing to watch. Thank you for that, Mark. An interesting battle. We're told to trust the AI, trust the high technology, but the reality is that we can't we can't do either. And uh, the same system systems being used there in America, of course, are used in other countries as well. It's a dangerous situation. Alex, let's come back to you. And uh, the subject is New Mexico. Yes, Brian, I wouldn't normally take the liberty of covering US news when our own esteemed mark is on, but the right to keep and bear arms is an English liberty transferred to the United States. And here we see that a sheriff um, covering uh, the city of Albuquerque, any Bugs Bunny cartoon viewer will know that's a, a city in the desert in New Mexico, uh, that the sheriff covering that city has said a flat no to the governor. Uh, the, uh, the headline from no less than the Associated Press is outrage intensifies over New Mexico governor's temporary gun ban as sheriff vows not to enforce it. Uh, so the governor is uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham, 
And she says she's up for a fight because she thinks, and we'll see a clip in a moment, with a wave of her hand, she can annul uh, the Second Amendment to the Constitution and the whole Bill of Rights effectively uh, because there's an emergency, don't you know? Uh, she forgot or uh, thought that she could uh, ignore this fact uh, that the county in question, Bernalillo, has its own sheriff and he's got a pledge directly to the people and a constitution that has nothing to do with the governor or politics. And he said, no, this is unconstitutional. There's no way we can enforce it. Here in uh, just over a minute is one of the most unconstitutional moments you will ever see, I think, even from a U.S. governor. Yeah, but your point is valid. You took an oath to the Constitution. Isn't it unconstitutional to say you cannot exercise your, your carrying license? With one exception, and that is if there's an emergency, and I've declared an emergency for a temporary amount of time, I can invoke additional powers. No constitutional right, in my view, including my oath, is intended to be absolute. There are restrictions on free speech. There are restrictions on my freedoms. In this emergency, this 11-year-old and all these parents who have lost all these children, they deserve my attention to have the debate about whether or not in an emergency we can create a safer environment. Because what about their constitutional rights? I took an oath to uphold those two. And if we ignore this growing problem without being bold, I've said to every other New Mexican, your rights are subrogated to theirs. And they are not, in my view. Uh, wait a minute, okay. you're talking about crimes. There are already laws against the crimes, so how are their rights? But, but again, if I'm unsafe, who's standing up for that right? If this climate is so out of control, somebody should do something. I'm doing as much as I know to do. Madam yep. do you really think that criminals are going to hear this message and not carry a gun in Albuquerque on the streets for 30 days? Uh, no. But here's what I do think. It's a pretty resounding message. So on the one hand, there's real rights in the Constitution, and on the other, I want to send a message and show I'm doing something and people have to feel safe, which I just made up. It's incredible, uh, Alex. There's so so much to discuss over that little element alone. There's a little bit of comment in our chat box that this is American news, but think through what this lady is saying. She's saying, in an emergency, in a declared emergency, we can create a safer environment. Do we believe any of this nonsense? Um, Mark, let's bring you in just to introduce us with the idea of the global mayor's system again, and we'll see where that's going to take us in UK. Well, hopefully the governor of New Mexico will never become a global mayor, correct? <laughs> Who doesn't seem to understand that if a right can be suspended at whim, then it's not a right at all. I guess she, she flunked the civics class. She certainly has lately. Now, the global parliament of mayors, of course, there are friends that think that cities can be uh, global rulers and step out of their city functions and function in a much higher unauthorized realm. Well, they, their delusions continue, but they... Uh, they postponed that. They were supposed to conclude today, literally, I believe, what would have been a three-day summit in Monrovia, Liberia, in Western Africa, and that didn't happen. And now they're going to meet in November. I believe that said Macedonia. So they've delayed their machinations. So there's a little breathing room, a little bit more time to get the skinny on what they're going to be talking about. So there'll be future reports very soon from me, possibly from others, in advance and afterwards as to what they discuss. We know that they're in the into the sustainable development goals of the UN and how climate change and the COVIDocracy fits into that, among other things, and the total abuse of their municipal authority, again, stepping out of that to higher realms that they're not authorized to even be in. But this is just a little note, uh, an FYI thing to keep date on, keep up to date on this. Uh, this is their statement currently as they postpone the West African meeting and, and uh, uh, went on from there to have it in November. The world is facing major challenges which must be addressed to create a sustainable future, the usual globalese buzzwords for the next generations. Many of the solutions, excuse me, lay in cities, according to them. The Global Parliament of Mayors Annual Summit 2023 will bring together mayors to support and elevate the role of cities and local leaders that means into those unauthorized realms as national or even supranational deciders 
in delivering a better, more democratic, boy, that's a stretch, more sustainable and a more inclusive, of course, world for all. This year's summit will be hosted in North Macedonia from the 17th to the 19th of November, hosted by Mayor Danella Arso, boy, Arsov, Arsovska, excuse me, uh, of Skopje. Um, Alex, you're going to have to help me out here. North Macedonia's capital and largest city. The summit will bring together mayors from around the world. It'll, it'll be open to both a global parliament of mayors mem- of members and non-members alike, as well as reps of city networks and international organizations. All of this is completely unaccountable and largely unknown to the people, of course. The program will consist of structured plenary debates between mayors on urgent global issues in cities and offer networking opportunities for city leaders and leaders of city networks and international organizations. Again, everybody but the taxpaying, hardworking public at large. And it'll include mayoral mayoral debates on topics of empowering cities, caring cities. That's a new one from my perspective. And delivering democracy. It's more like the other way around to advance policy development. So that's just an important update. We'll, we'll keep a very close, uh, close eye on that and keep tabs on what they're doing before and after that next event. So there you go, guys. Okay, thank you very much for that, Mark. Well, uh, a good introduction because uh, over the last couple of days, The Telegraph has finally managed to focus in on Sadiq Khan and ask what he is doing um, with his C40s. Uh, work. So this is part of the headline, no meat, no dairy and three outfits a year. Welcome to Sadiq Khan's plan for London. Now, I'm just going to reinforce here, of course, it isn't his plan. So the Telegraph is spinning this article uh, already. But if we get into some some of the, the uh, meat of the article itself, there were some quotes. Um, this was um, uh, a quote from uh, the mayor of London's organisation. It said that this C40 net zero report was published well before Sadiq became chair of C40. The ideas mentioned are not proposals, let alone recommendations. And the mayor is certainly not suggesting to anyone that they shouldn't eat meat or that they shouldn't fly. It is for cities to determine the most effective implementation pathway for them. So this is a wonderfully spun article. It doesn't get into really the accountability, who is coming up with these plans, who's implementing it. It's a general suggestion that these are any suggestions and uh, people won't implement them, but cities will. If we go on to the next one here, uh, it said that Sadiq has set an ambitious target for London to reach net zero by 2030. And London is leading the way by insulating homes, electrifying our buses and taxi fleets and expanding electric vehicle infrastructure to the extent that our capital has the most public rap- has the most public rapid charging points of any European city. So we can feel uh, comfortable about that. And um, it says that the report is a generic analysis of emissions and it's not looking at any specific C40 city. It's not a plan for cities to adopt. It's up to individuals to make their lifestyle choices, including what type of food to eat and what uh, type of clothing they prefer in a European city. Apologies for the little bit of corruption there. So here's uh, the C40 city site. And of course, you can see that uh, uh, many cities around the world are drawn into that. Uh, This is a quote by the C40 chair himself, Sadiq Khan. He said, together we can and we must utilise the power of cities across the globe and continue to lead the charge when it comes to tackling the climate crisis, taking the necessary action now, not in 10, 20 or 30 years time. But now that was his statement in COP26. And clearly he's saying that you're going to have to suck this up. This is not a a menu on the table that we, the public, are going to pick and choose from. No, he's telling you what's uh, actually coming. Now, the article raised some criticism, which uh, I think is designed to placate the public a little bit. It's a quote from Craig McKinley, who's the chair of Net Zero Security Group. He's also a Conservative MP. And he said, fresh from imposing misery on motorists through his draconian Euler's expansion, Sadiq Khan appears to be conspiring new ways to make people's lives miserable. So it's all a little bit jokey. Um, Who is this organisation? Well, it was actually set up um, by Steve Baker. He at least is the chair. 
of the Tory net zero scrutiny group. But if this uh, uh, is supposed to give us a warm feeling, it doesn't give me a particularly warm feeling because apparently the group says it accepts the fundamental facts of the climate emergency and the need to reduce emissions. Thereby, it would seem to me that everything else follows in their menu of what, what we need to uh, do and adapt and what we need to stop eating. So if we bring this into the present reality, we've got to get into the clean air zones. And um, I can uh, show what happened to me over the last couple of days because I needed to go to a particular area in Bristol. That brought me into the zone. And so I've had to go through this payment system on the gov.uk site. And you'll see for two breaches of the clean air zone, that's a quick 18 quid. Um, so it appears to me this is mainly about making money for the local authorities over and above um, saving the planet. So we just bring in the article again to uh, ram home the fact that, yes, the Telegraph is talking, but no, they're not drilling into who the uh, global authorities are that are making these decisions to affect not only London and other cities in UK, but cities across the world. And uh, Mark, just bring you back quickly, because, of course, if we can't uh, live in cities without somebody telling us how it's to be done, we certainly can't look after our health and uh, more on COVID. Yeah, I've talked, of course, a lot on this show about the doctrine of the lesser magistrates and whether it's formally or informally invoked, it has the same effect. We've talked about two Michigan counties. And now we have Odessa, a city in Texas, kind of the northwest part of Texas, and that council voted to not enforce state or federal COVID mandates. And it shows Chris Haney, a city councilman, District 5. This is from CBS Affiliate 7 in that part of Texas. Moving on from there, uh, just a, a brief snippet here. This is from September 12. The city of Odessa voted not to enforce any mandates imposed nationally or by the state of Texas. The resolution was presented by City Council Member Chris Haney. He says why and where we need to mask up is for individuals to decide. Nobody's going to lose a job because they don't get a stick, that is the jab, or they have to wear a mask, he said. He says Odessa is not seeing a rise in COVID cases. And uh, there's a state rep, a Brian Harrison, who was chief of staff of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services under pr former President Trump. He partnered with the city of Odessa on this matter and said that Joe Biden and his, his administration are trying to bring back COVID tyranny for round two. This, of course, is music to the ears of the WHO. And um, the uh, city of Odessa, the last thing I'll note about this, is the first city apparently in the state of Texas to do this. So this may catch fire and become very uh, viral. Now, moving on from there, this is an important reminder of something that I and others have been steadily reporting, and that is the, the perils that evidently await humankind with regards to the WHO developing and signing its COVID pandemic treaty or the general pandemic treaty, including COVID, and the updated international health regulations. This is the most imminent thing happening. UN is set to agree on a new political declaration on pandemics next week, which is actually this week, in four days' time, uh, actually in two days' time now, Wednesday, September 20th, our representatives, representatives in quotes, meeting at the UN will sign off on a declaration entitled Political Declaration of the United Nations General Assembly High-Level Meeting on Pandemic Prevention, Preparedness, and Response. This was announced as a silent procedure, meaning that states not responding will be deemed as supporting the text. And James Roguski, another watchdog on this, has talked about this. Uh, countries that don't object, it will be assumed that they approve of these things. So it's very important for the public to make noise if they're so inclined, and then their representatives to make noise. And uh, I mentioned the silent procedure. Uh, another thing I'll add briefly, the WHO noted in 2019 that pandemics are rare and insignificant in terms of overall mortality over the last century. Since then, however, the WHO decided that the 2019 old normal population was simply oblivious to impending annihilation. 
Thus, the WHO and the entire UN system of which it's a part now considers pandemics as existential and imminent. And this matters because they are asking for far more money than is normally spent on any other international health program. That's our money. This will deliver great wealth to some people who now work closely with the WHO and the UN. That includes Big Pharma. The powers being sought from your government will reimpose the very responses that have just caused the largest growth in poverty and disease in our lifetimes. That's the lockdown primarily. And logically, pandemics will only become more frequent if someone intends to make them so. And just like those uh, um, low emission zones, uh, being a big moneymaker, uh, so too uh, is the COVIDocracy and the uh, preparation for the public mind of pandemics. So uh, very interesting and uh, vital things to watch. Um, I'll make sure that in the show notes that there's other com- uh, contact information, phone numbers, emails that people can use uh, to find out how to get more involved if they're so inclined. So back to you, Brian. Okay, thank you, Mark. And of course, the key bit there is if you're silent, you're taken as as agreeing. And this is one of the warnings that UK Column has pushed out really since we have been going. You cannot just be silent and allow these things to happen. You need to speak out. Now, Alex, you've been traveling to speak out and uh, uh, the subject about UN Agenda 21, the Great Reset, but also for you, the absence of God. Yes, Brian. Um, this was hosted by Yuria Roshka, the former deputy prime minister of Moldova. He could easily have been president if he was a, a less scrupulous man. Uh, the, the peak of his influence was 2009. Since then, he says he's become a more convinced Orthodox Christian. And he hosted here in his own uh, Moldova in the countryside this Kishinev Forum, an annual event, although it was disrupted by COVID a couple of years. This year's theme was UN Agenda 21 and the Great Reset. I'll just zip through these a few seconds at a time. Um, This was a mixed event. So uh, as well as people in the hall there from left to right, you've got Yuri Aroshka. Um, It's a Töpfer of uh, Germany uh, and uh, Professor uh, Gary Robson, who I'll be uh, speaking with uh, in Krakow shortly as well at the Jagiellonian University, uh, a a, a Brit in exile in academia. As well as these men in the hall, uh, you had uh, contributors uh, online as well. Uh, the subtitle of the event was The Fall from Liberalism to Technocracy and Transhumanism, and it was a broad palette event. You had atheists there, you had very committed Christians. Uh, my talk was on the forgetting of God. That will be up in due course. Uh, all the stuff will be in the show notes to find out where these talks will be uploaded to. Magnificently catered for by an army of babushkas. Uh, multilingual material uh, on uh, globalism, technocracy, and transhumanism. Perfect harmony between those who see hope in Putin and those who are more of Ian Davis's perspective, and Ian was one of the speakers. You can see me at the back right there. Uh, these are just the in-person speakers uh, posing for the camera crew, very professional uh, was the camera crew. Uh, the catering was from Yuri's own survivalist farm, shall we call it, so fantastic melons, grapes, figs, etc. cetera. Uh, he has a polytunnel and uh, a, a farm and a menagerie all in his back garden. Uh, he practices what he preaches. This I just took a few seconds of just to show that horses and carts and no disrespect meant to Moldova here. It's so peaceful just outside this conference room where we're talking about globalism and technocracy and post-humanism. We see this uh, happy peasant who doesn't want anything more than um, his his horse and cart uh, without any disrespect to the man, really. Just just, uh, I I got an overwhelming sense of peace from the environment. There's downtown Kishinev, half a million people, a capital city with no noise, no litter, no problems as far as I can see in the, in the modern European sense. And here are the speakers, if you want to freeze the screen, a good number of French and French-speaking people and also from Latin America. They tended to be in the more pro-Putin camp, uh, clean on bricks and multilateralism, but there was uh, a palette of uh, views here for everyone. You'll see Sir Julian Rose spoke just before Professor Robson as well. Jacob Nordangor from Sweden has already had his talk put up. All the, the links will be in the show notes to find out where they are. And they will be translated as well. So most of the speeches were delivered in English. They'll be available multilingually. I am sure, Brian, that I will be back uh, to interview Yuri Roshka and some of his uh, associates. Now, my and finally, uh, this is a science class. And the lecturer says the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. And this generation doesn't like that. So they yell back, fake numbers, not a fact, only a theorem. You're a shill for big trig. 
Pythagoras recanted on his deathbed. I'm entitled to my own opinion. Ha, you trust mainstream mathematics? Don't tell me what to think. That's what they want us to believe. How much does geometry pay you to say that? Illuminati symbolism and further proof that ancient aliens created the triangle. I hope our viewers won't mind the brief dig at uh, some of the wackier parts of the alternative media scene. And uh, we sometimes take it on the chin because we don't cover people's pet theories. But uh, I think a bit of self-effacing uh, humor is uh, is in, in order in, in some of these situations. And a second and finally from me is this wonderful meme. Uh, somebody who's in tune with the system narrative says, you sound like a conspiracy theorist. And he gets the repartee, you sound like a corruption denier, at which the uh, uh, the write-on guy explodes with rage because he doesn't know what to say. Brilliant. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. And wonderful to see people from different parts of the world coming together to talk about what's happening and to be brave enough to mention God. More on that in uh, coming UK Column News. We must end there. Thank you all very much for joining us wherever you are in the world. And uh, if you're a subscriber, stay with us. UK Column Extra will uh, be in a few minutes time, but we will see you then. Thank you. Bye bye.